Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, C4. How's everyone doing today? Thank you so much. As Pastor Mark said, uh, there's a lot of places that you could be this weekend, and I'm really glad that you've chosen to come to church. Either that or all your friends just left you out. Uh, you know, I'm, but either way, I'm really glad that you're here. It, it's, so, it's so good to be here. Well, we are continuing on in our summer series on the book of Psalms. Uh, it's been a, a really good series thus far, and we've been specifically looking at the different types of psalms that we find in the book of Psalms, looking at the various genres of psalms. And the whole goal behind this series has been to look at the psalms and look at these different types and then say, how is that then applicable to me today living in Durham region in 2015? And so, so far, uh, Pastor John has taken you know, us through some of the psalms. He's taken a, a look at some of the wisdom psalms, the creation psalms. And last week, he looked at the psalms of ascent and, and it's so uh, interesting for us to think about a thousand years of history of a community of people, you know, walking with God and with each other, talking about their life experiences with God and with each other, and they're recorded for us in the Psalms. And so, you know, we get to look into uh, all of this great history, all of this uh, great culmination of wisdom and experience, and we get to learn from it. We get to get equipped because of that. Well, Pastor John and his family are enjoying, you know, um, a great vacation uh, for the next few weeks, and so he invited me to speak this morning on the Lament Psalms. Lament on a long weekend in August, and then the guy just leaves town. Anyways, it's great. It's great. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so pleased to be able to do this this morning. Yeah. No, I'm being really serious. Okay. <laughs> Lament psalm. What, is it? what on earth is a lament psalm? And sometimes they're called confessional psalms. What on earth is a lament psalm? Well, here's a great example of a lament psalm. A psalm of David. Oh, why? Why am I stuck here? Why am I here while Pastor John and his family are enjoying whale watching and eating lobster in the Bay of Fundy. Oh, God, have mercy. Forgive me. Forgive me for my envy and my jealousy. Amen. That is a lament psalm, okay? So just so you get to get the flavor of kind of what we're talking about this morning. Well, lament psalms are those psalms that are constructed out of the dark nights of the soul. Lament psalms are the polar opposite of praise and worship psalms. Lament psalms are where people cry out, when they cry out about injustice, about confession, about pain, and about suffering. In lament psalms, the psalmist will cry out and say, why do bad things always happen to good people? And why do good things, conversely, happen to bad people? Those are the nature of lament psalms. Those things get worked out in the lament psalms. They are very, very corporate but they're highly personal in nature also. Now, out of the 150 or so, there are 150, not or so, there are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms, but about 60 of them we could classify as lament psalms. And so it's a huge uh, grouping in this particular genre of psalms. 
Now, there's no way that I can cover all of the lament psalms this morning. We'd be here for an awfully long time. And so what I've done is I've chosen to zero on in, in on one particular lament psalm. And it's a lament psalm that is around confession. It's Psalm 51. And so if you have a Bible, uh, whether you have a physical one like mine or whether you're going to uh, use a device, you can make your way to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a song about coming clean with God. The songwriter, who is King David, has allowed us to enter into a very private place in his life. And this song records for us King David's great confession after he had committed, or sorry, after he'd been confronted with his wrongdoings. His example offers us hope as we move from brokenness to restoration. And I want you to remember that throughout this morning as I talk to you, as I open up the Word of God and try to explain what I believe the Word of God would say to us in this lament psalm today. The whole purpose of this this morning, the whole application of this lament psalm is that in the midst of brokenness, we could find hope and restoration. It's the great cry of Psalm 1. It's the great cry of David's heart. Well, the background to the song is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and chapter 12. It's this great episode. It's a painful, painful episode, but it's this great episode. It starts off this way. King David can't sleep one night. He's in his mid-40s about now, and he's you know, well into his kingship. And he can't sleep this one night, and he gets up, and he's walking around the rooftop terrace of his palace. Now, David shouldn't even have been there in the first place. The scripture tells us that uh, David's army was off, uh, involved in war and in battle. And for some reason, maybe because he was in his mid-40s and David was going through a little midlife crisis or something, he didn't want to go off to the front lines with the army. He stayed back in the luxury of the palace. So he should never have been in this place in the first place. But as he's walking around his rooftop, he's just kind of looking over, you know, the town. And he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. And his passion is aroused. So he sends word and he says, does anybody know who this woman is? And he is told that her name is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah, one of his soldiers who is fighting on the front line. Well, David has an awful lot of power because he's the king. He's the absolute authority. He sends for Bathsheba and she is brought to him and he seduces her and he commits adultery with her. He has sexual relations with another man's wife. Well, she leaves and she goes back and later on she sends word to David that she has become pregnant. Well, David is kind of stuck now, right? And his first thoughts are, how do I cover this up? Like, how do I make this go away? And so what he does is he conjures up a plan in his own mind and he sends to the front line and he says, look, I want to hear how things are going out on the front line, out in the battle. So uh, could you send Uriah the Hittite, her husband, back to bring me word? Well, Uriah shows up on, and he says, look, everything's going well. And there's this kind of indignation with, it, with Uriah because he's like, why on earth did you send for me? Like, what am I doing here? I should be fighting. You know it's going well. And David says, oh, I just want to know how things are going. So he says, hey, you know what? Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. You know, we should have a party because things are going well on the front line. And while you're home, you know, you should go home and say hi to your wife, you know? And Uriah's like, are you joking me, David? While all of my fellow soldiers are out on the front line, sleeping on the stars in danger, you think that I would betray my band of brothers by doing that? Absolutely not. And he refuses to go home and sleep with his wife. 
Well, David tries three times. He even gets him drunk in one of the times, and it still doesn't work. This guy is an honorable, dedicated, loyal guy. He will not compromise. And so David is like, oh, man, this plan's not working. So he devises a second plan in his mind. He writes orders to Joab, who is the commander-in-chief on the front line, and he says, I want you to put Uriah the Hittite at the very place of battle where the battle is the fiercest and the strongest. And when the battle is raging and when the enemy is really hitting us hard, I want you and the other troops to pull back and expose Uriah the Hittite so that he'll get killed. And he writes this order and he gives it to Uriah to take back to the front line. And so that's exactly what happens. Joab, the commander-in-chief, does what his, his commander-in-chief tells him to do, the king. He puts Uriah at the front. The battle gets fierce. They pull back, and Uriah is killed in battle. And when news reaches David that Uriah has been killed in battle, after Bathsheba goes through a time, a period of mourning, he brings her to the palace, and he makes her his wife. Everything's kind of going along. And then one day, a prophet shows up in the king's court. And the prophet's name is Nathan. And Nathan walks into the court of King David. And King David is sitting there in all of his splendor with all of his court officials around. And they're conducting business or doing the things that kings do. And Nathan comes up to David and he says, I have a story. I have something I need to tell you, David. I need your wisdom on something. You see, there's a guy who is filthy rich. There is a guy who has so many sheep and goat and cattle and all kinds of things. He is so wealthy. It's, it's, it's remarkable how wealthy it is. And contrasting him, there's this first guy. There's a second guy who only has one sheep. That's all the guy owns. And he got it when it was just a little lamb. And he would feed it from his table, and his children would play with that little lamb. And as that lamb grew, it would even sleep with his children until it became a full-grown sheep. And they loved it like a child, this one lamb, because it's all they owned. Well, one day a visitor comes to town, Nathan says, and the visitor has come to see this really wealthy guy, and he says, I'm going to stay with you. I'd like to stay the night. Well, it's customary in the East to throw a great feast. And so this really wealthy guy throws a huge feast, but he doesn't want to use any of his sheep or goats or cattle. What he does is he goes and he takes this one sheep from the guy, and he kills it, and he uses that sheep to feed this friend. Well, David's anger burns in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he says, whoever did this deserves to die. And I imagine in my mind's eye, Nathan the prophet with his bony prophet finger pointing at the king in all of his splendor. And he says, you, you are the man. And David suddenly realizes what's happened. He is cut to the heart. And Nathan exposes his sin of adultery and lying and murder and the loss of confidence with all of the, with his soldiers and with his officials in the, in, in the courts. David is completely exposed in his sin. And David's only response is, I have sinned. I have sinned. And Psalm 51 is the response of King David. It's his song, it's his poem, it's his recollection, his response to his great sin that he has committed and this episode where Nathan the prophet has exposed him. So to David's credit, he comes clean when he's confronted with his sin. And Psalm 51, this song, this beautiful song, this great lament, this great confession, 
is him recalling his response. Now, the superscript to Psalm 51, if you have like an NIV Bible or any of the other Bibles, you'll see before it gets to verse 1, there's a superscript that's there. It tells us some important information as we go into this psalm. It tells us, first of all, that it was written for public worship. (laughs) Think about that for a second, will you? This is a psalm outlining someone's personal sin that everybody's going to hear about in worship service. (laughs) It's in the order of service coming up next week, your personal sin. We're going to talk about it, okay? How'd you feel about that? The second thing we know is that it is a psalm that is written by King David. So we know this is about David. And it also tells us that it's about this particular situation. It's about his sin over Bathsheba. So we know that with great certainty. Now from this great psalm, Psalm 51, from David's indiscretions, I think there's some things that you and I can really learn today as we apply this. Now, if you were to look at my personal Bible, my Bible that I read on my own and I do my devotions out of and everything else, you would see that out of all of the books of the Bible, the Psalms are the most highlighted and have the most notes in my personal Bible. I go back to the Psalms over and over again. It's why I'm so excited, actually, that we're going through this series this summer. And out of all of the Psalms that are in the Bible... (laughs) that I have highlighted and written notes to, if you were to look at my personal Bible, you would see that Psalm 51 has probably got the most number of notes and highlights out of all of the Psalms that are in my Bible. Because over the years in my Christian walk, I've had to go back to Psalm 51 over and over and over again. It's why it's so applicable for us today. Now, thank God it's not for the same reasons that David had to go back to it or that David wrote it. But yet, Psalm 51 is so important for us. We can't lose sight of Psalm 51 today. So here's what I want you to understand from Psalm 51. Five things that I'm going to highlight really quickly this morning. The first one is this, that coming clean with God requires confession. Coming clean with God requires confession. (laughs) Apparently, there was a man who wrote a letter to the Canada Revenue Agency. And he said that he couldn't sleep at night because he had cheated on his income tax return. And he said, enclosed in the letter is $500. If I still can't sleep at night, I'll send the rest. Okay? See, that's not confession. (laughs) That is not confession. Somebody has said that confession is telling God what he already knows. And confession is rooted in an understanding of the character of God. Look at what David cries out in verse 1 of Psalm 51. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. David is appealing here to the character and the nature of God. David knows God. He understands who God is and what God is like. He's had a relationship with God. And now that he has sinned, this gross, this grievous sin in God's sight, he comes to God and the first thing that he appeals to is God's unfailing love. The Hebrew word that we get unfailing love from here is the Hebrew word hesed. It's a very, very important Old Testament term. It's worthy of study. It's, it's, it's really what, uh, what grace is to us in the New Testament. Hesed is in the Old Testament. It's this unmerited, unwanted, unconditional love of God. It's the favor that God extends to people, even though we should not be recipients of his favor. David appeals to this God that he knows He knows that he is kind and merciful, compassionate, pursuing, consuming, unconditional in his love, in his grace, and in his mercy. 
In verses 1 to 3, David goes on to say this, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my sin and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. David uses three verbs here when confessing his need to God and is confessing his sin. He asks God to blot out, to wash away, and to cleanse. What David is really doing here, he's using a literary device because he's a poet, because he's a songwriter. He's actually piling up his pleas here to God. And with each one of these verbs, he pairs them with a noun. And these nouns are the three most commonly used words for sin in the Old Testament. He uses the words transgression, iniquity, and sin. Now, what you really need to understand here, what what David is doing here, why he's intentionally using this wording, is he's trying to show that he is not in any way trying to duck away from his sin. You know, what happens so many times with people when God convicts them of their sin or when they get confronted or found out by their sin, we try to minimize it. And David's saying, there's no hint of trying to minimize my sin at all. It'd be the equivalent to us saying today, look, I have sinned from A all the way over to Z. David is using all of the words that he can possibly use for sin, and he's using the three most commonly used words for sin, and he's saying all of those words apply to what I have done. And I'm asking God, you know, to forgive me, to blot out, to wash away, and to cleanse this whole spectrum of sin that I am guilty of. David is confessing to God. He's telling God, What God already knows, what God has used Nathan to point out and to bring to the forefront because David had decided to harbor it and to cover it up. For those of us who are parents, you know, we really get this, right? We know this. Your kid breaks something. I don't care how old they are. They break something. And they know they broke it. And you're pretty sure that it was them that broke it. And so you come to them and you know this can go one of two ways, right? Either they lie, justify, or blame someone else, or they come clean with you. And what happens to our human parent hearts when our kids tell us the truth? There may be punishment for the thing that was broken, but our hearts are filled with compassion and great love because our kids are exhibiting character. The very thing that we're trying all of our lives to instill in our kids. Godly character. And so God looks for people who respond the same way to him. David cries out in verses 4 to 6, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. David is saying here that he's not just aware of his sin on an intellectual, on a factual level, but he's actually broken up about his sin. He's convicted about his sin right in the deepest core of his being. Now, some people get a little bent out of shape with King David here when he says, you know, against you and you only have I sinned in verse 4. 
But I want to assure you that David is not trying to minimize what happened to Bathsheba and what happened to Uriah, what happened to Joab and to his servants and officials around him. He's not trying to minimize that at all. Actually, what David is really trying to do is he's trying to up the ante. He's trying to say, look, I know that other people get hurt when you sin against other people, but in the end, ultimately, against God, all sin is an affront because of the nature and the character of a holy God. And David is trying to point that out very clearly here. Sin is like a crime. It's like a debt. It's like a stain. But ultimately sin, all sin is against the God who is our creator, who loves us with this unfailing chesed love. When we see that all sin is ultimately an affront to a holy God, it should drive us to our knees in confession. Now here's the problem with most sin. Most sin is just hidden. Like David, you and I, we try to cover it up. We try to cover our tracks. We try to to devise ways to sort of make it go away. We're great at inventing schemes. Confession brings things out into the open, into the light, so it actually can be dealt with appropriately. You see... Here's what we need to understand about confession. And here's what we need to understand about that episode when Nathan stood in front of King David and he pointed that finger on him and he said, you are the man. Confession is never meant to humiliate us. It is always meant to humble us. Because if we are not humble in recognition of the depth of our own sinfulness, then how on earth can we ever fully grasp the nature of the great forgiveness that God offers us. And so the second thing that I think that this psalm helps us really understand is that coming clean means understanding forgiveness. Like we've really got to understand forgiveness. Having confessed his sin to God, David now asks God to remove from him the effects of his sin. He says this in verses 7 through 9. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my transgression. In the Old Testament, in David's day, the priests would use hyssop to cleanse lepers. So if a leper was cleansed from their leprosy, they would put hyssop on them, and then they could go through a purification ceremony, and then they would be allowed back into the community of faith. And David is drawing on that experience that everyone understands, and he's asking God to actually cleanse him with hyssop. He's trying to say, look, God, I know the effects of my sin. I know that I'm unclean now in my community. I know that I've let people down. I have hurt other people. I have sinned against you. And so what I'm asking you to do, God, is to take that away from from me, please. These are powerful, powerful words. Guilt destroys us. It eats us away. It blemishes us. And David is asking that his guilt be dealt with. In verse 8, David cries these words out, let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Like what David's saying here is, look, I've been, I know my sin. In, in, from the time when he committed this sin up until Nathan confronts him, some, some time has elapsed. And what David is finally admitting here publicly is that there have been those dark nights of the soul when he has remembered what he has done, when God has poked at him and prodded at him and tried to directly confront him on this. And David is saying, my bones are crushed. He says, I have felt the weight of what I have done. 
I'm the king of Israel. I was chosen by God. I was anointed by God to lead these people. And I should have been out on the front lines where where I was supposed to be. But I committed adultery. I committed and conspired to commit murder. And I've lied to the people who trust me most. And he said, it's wrecked me. I've, I've been crushed in my heart and my spirit. And David does something unbelievable here in this when he says, he says, hide your face in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Every time you find, other than this occasion, every time you find in the scripture that God hides his face, it is always God exercising his holy anger. When God hides his face, bad things happen. You think about it. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face away from his son while he hung on the cross. Why? Because God had to pour out his righteous anger. And Jesus was the only one who could be our substitute, a holy sacrifice to take all of the anger, all of the sin, all of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the repercussions of our sin. He bore it all upon himself. And that's why God turned his face from him. But David says... Hide your face from my sins. See, David believes that God can forgive. David understands the true nature of forgiveness. That yes, God is full of hesed, this unfailing love, but he is a God who desires to forgive people. Have you ever felt like King David? Have you ever felt crushed? Have you ever been wrecked? Over your own sin? Have you ever been so convicted, so burdened that you couldn't handle it? There's a great verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 where the Apostle Paul says these words Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, when God brings conviction to us, When our sin is pointed out, whether it's by the Holy Spirit directly in our own minds, in our own hearts, or whether a brother or a sister points it out, or whether when someone is preaching like this or a prophet speaks to you and points out the sinful condition of your own life, godly sorrow is the right response. Godly sorrow. Because it brings and it leads to salvation and it leaves absolutely no regret. Because again, God doesn't want to humiliate us, but he does need to humble us. To bring us to our knees. You see, if you've never known the terrible heaviness of your own sin, you'll never fully understand the true nature and depth of forgiveness. To be, given, to be forgiven and cleansed is to understand real joy and real gladness. Well, the third thing that I see in this passage is that coming clean with God and with others seeks restoration. You know, sin is so destructive in our lives. It breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with other people. And it robs us of the joy of our salvation. David forced himself on Bathsheba. He committed adultery. He had her husband killed. And now he has taken her as his wife. But other people knew about this. Some of his servants knew about it. It affected David's relationship with God, with Bathsheba, with Nathan the prophet, with Joab, his commander-in-chief, and all of his servants. And yet David cries out in verses 10 through 12 these incredible words. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David is pleading here for restoration. He is pleading for restoration of his relationship with God and with those who are around about him. David is literally asking here for a miracle. He is saying, look, God, I need a new heart. You see, see, David wants to change. David understands that he needs to change and that he knows that his relationship with God has been impacted, but also he understands that his relationship with his community has also been impacted. He understands how deep the infection of sin has become, and he is asking for something way beyond superficial. He's asking for a brand new heart. You see, when we hurt people, we lose their trust. And without a genuine heart change, without demonstrating that there has been some concrete changes in our lives, those around us are in danger of being hurt all over again. And David understood this too well. You see, you have to want to change. You you have to want to walk away from the very sins that you have committed. You have to want to say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to do those things anymore. And, And so David cries out, God, create in me this new heart. Give me this new heart and give me a willing spirit so that I'll walk this way and not back that way again. It's what repentance is really all about. But I wonder also if maybe David had a terrible memory at this time too. Maybe David had a terrible memory about his predecessor, King Saul. You remember King Saul? Tall and handsome. Chosen by the people to be the first king over Israel. Chosen and anointed, just like David was anointed. And God allowed his Holy Spirit to come on King Saul, just like the Holy Spirit came on King David. And yet Saul, Saul ends his own life at the end of his reign in his life, demented, vicious, pathetic, scared, and disgraced. His relationship with God, his relationship with his family and with his people had been shipwrecked. And primarily the reason that that happened is because when Saul was confronted with his own sin, He would not repent. And maybe that haunted David. Maybe David looked at that example and said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. See, that's why the scriptures and community are so good for us. They point to us constantly examples, good examples, but unfortunately, because life is real and it is messy, negative examples. And we have negative examples in the scripture, and we have negative examples in our communities. Where we have these great examples, we say, I want to be like that person. I want to be like him, or I want to be like her. But then we also have these examples where we say, I don't want to be like him, and I don't want to be like her. I want to finish well. I don't want to end my life the way that person ended. I think David just didn't want history to repeat itself in his life. And he's asking God to renew him, to give him faith and endurance over the long haul. He wants to never forget the joy of the salvation that comes from God and the effects that that salvation has to have on David's everyday life. 
So having been forgiven and restored, look at David's response now. He has poured out his heart in this great lament. And then in verses 13 onwards, David now responds. And the whole tone of the lament psalm changes now. But we have to pause right away on verse 13 in the very first word. It's a very important word. If you're using your own Bible, you need to highlight or underline this word. It's the word then. See, you can't skip over that word too quickly. (laughs) You can't go to where we're going to go to now if you don't spend the dark night of the soul in verses 1 through 12. In confession and understanding the nature of forgiveness and in practicing restoration and restitution with other people. If you don't spend the time there, then you can't go to the then. There are two thens that we see in here. The first one is that coming clean results in worship. That's the first response that we see here. In verses 13 to 15, David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Why is worship the proper response here? Well, you and I know the answer to that, right? I mean, we're right with David on this one, aren't we? Like, once you understand the depth of forgiveness of sin, how could you do anything else but worship? Once I, personally, Dave Adams, when I understand, and I think about this regularly, I often think about it as I get ready to come on Sunday mornings, when I understand the depth of forgiveness that God has given to me, when I understand how much I have hurt him and I have hurt other people, and to know that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed that transgression from me, then I come here and worship is a fitting response. And i got to say to you, I have to, as one of your pastors, I have to say, if you struggle with worship, maybe you struggle with forgiveness. Maybe you can't worship because you don't know the depths of forgiveness. Maybe you're still harboring some stuff in your heart and in your mind that you need to make right with God and other people. And maybe that's why worship just stinks for you. You see, because I think worship has got very little to do with the music, whether it's loud or soft, whether it's slow or fast, it it doesn't really matter. Worship is a response of the heart. It is aided and guided by the music that is so wonderfully offered to us. We're, We're asked to enter in and we're drawn in, but we're drawn in because we have been people who have been redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. When you've been redeemed, you can't help but let it out. And you let it out. One of the great valves for letting it out is worship. David says in verses 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifices, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, if you were Hebrew and you were reading this, you'd be like, What? What are you talking about? See, burnt offerings were the prescribed method of worship. Sacrifices were what were required in order to worship. But what David is saying here is, if you bring your prescribed method of worship and your heart is not in it, and your heart is not broken and laid bare and open before God, then you're just going through the motions and it's meaningless. 
It's meaningless. The inner state of the heart is what validates whether worship is good or not. You know, I, I've been around church a long time, and people would say, oh, man, worship was really good this morning, right? So what they mean is, oh, Jerome, he was on fire. Mm. He was Jerominating this morning. Like it's a verb now in our community, right? But that's not what makes worship good. What makes worship good is the state of my heart and the state of your heart. We need to get this right, people, if we're to be the kind of worshipers that God the Father is seeking. It's only when we experience forgiveness, renewal individually, and revival corporately will we begin to know what it is to be the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. Well, the final thing that I see in here is that coming clean ignites us for service. Again, going back to verse 13 and then looking at verses 18 and 19. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Again, what on earth is he talking about? Well, let me say this. David is the king. He is the Kai. He's the commander-in-chief. And as such, the upkeep of the walls of the city which were vital to the safety and security and the ongoing welfare of the people, are ultimately King David's responsibility. The worship that uh, that happens in the temple, although it is performed by priests and Levites, is ultimately the main worship leader was to be the king of Israel. And David has been neglecting these things because of his sin that he has hidden and harbored in his heart. And it has hurt the whole community. And what David is doing now is he is asking that God would now once again help him perform his work, his service, and his ministry with a right heart. When Nathan came to David and confronted him with his sin, David's heart was on trial. He could have told Nathan, you know, get lost. He could have, um, you know, he could have become angry like King Saul became angry and started throwing javelins at people. Or he could have executed Nathan on the spot like Herod did in the New Testament to John the Baptist. David's heart was on trial when he was, you know, confronted with this prophetic message. So our hearts are on trial too. What are you going to do about your own sin? What are you going to do about your own guilt? Are you going to bury it? Are you going to try to cover it up like David? Are you going to concoct some, some crazy scheme to try and cover all of the bases? Are you going to continue the insane hypocrisy as if nothing's wrong? See, Psalm 51, this lament psalm, shows us a better way. Face up to it. Have dealings with God about it. Desire change. Seek renewal and revival. And believe above all else that God loves you. And that he is desperately for you. And that he has provided in the sacrifice of his son Jesus forgiveness and cleansing from your sin. There's this great verse, or three great verses in the New Testament. At 1 John Chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light, the Apostle John says, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. But if we claim to be without sin, hear this church this morning, because John is writing this to the church. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And now these great words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This great lament of King David in Psalm 51, this great lament serves as a reminder to us today that we need to walk in the light, that we need to keep short accounts with God and with those who are around about us because it deeply impacts our worship and our service. It deeply impacts our worship and our service. And so as one of your pastors, I want to encourage you. If you are in a season right now, or if you find yourself in a place, or even if this morning God has put his finger on your heart this morning, could I, could I please ask you to not run from God? Could I please ask you to respond to the good mercy of a God who loves you so much and who wants you to come to him, who wants you to come and to confess and to admit what God already knows to be true because in that you will find his loving kindness and his great forgiveness and it will impact you and it will impact all of us because it will change your worship and it will change your service. Let's pray together. So Lord God, thank you for Psalm 51. Thank you for David's openness in scripting what he was convinced you wanted him to script so long ago. Thank you that it helps me, that it helps us, you know, to live in right relationship with you and with one another. And so, Lord, in, uh, in the remainder of our time, as we respond now, as Jerome and the team lead us, uh, would you continue to do the work that only you can do? And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.